right, guys, uh, we're going to get going here. Whitney, if you could bring down the music. And is that camera on yet for the live streamers? You got, you're on? Okay. Um, so, guys, before we actually start into the sermon tonight, uh, what I'd like to do, uh, we had a group of about or nine of us last night that went out and did some witnessing. So um, I'm going to tell a couple stories of what uh, some of the things that Aunt Karen and Melissa and I had take place. But uh, I'd also like, uh, Diane, if you could come up, I'd like to talk, I'd like you to tell about the group of, I think there were, you say, five young ladies that you got to witness to and uh, had a group of them give their lives to the Lord. So go ahead and come up, Diane, and uh, I'll let you tell that story. I think there were a lot of people that had a lot of stories, but um, when we had kind of switched groups, I saw this, this group of girls over to the side inside the theater, inside the theater over there sitting, and I just felt drawn to go over there, and there were, there were actually three of them. There were two teenage girls, like probably 15 years old, and in the middle and near them was a little girl that was six, and um, she was the cutest little thing. But I started talking to them about that relationship with the Lord, and I asked them, I asked them if they'd gone to church. He said, well, they don't really go to church. And I said, well, I was talking to him about, you know, having that relationship with the Lord. And we talked about the fact that everyone has sinned, and they agreed, and they knew that. And anyway, as, as it went on, um, they were really near um, wanting to pray. The little six-year-old, for sure, she had her hands folded, and she had her little eyes locked on me. And the one, the one teenage girl was just looking at me, and she was just in she was totally enraptured by what I was saying. She wasn't turning away for anything. The other girl was very distracted because sometimes that'll happen, you know. So we were about to pray and um, just about, and then these two teenage girls came up. And I thought, oh, no, I'm right in the middle of. But anyway, so I, we just looked at them, and, we, and, and the girl over there and I said, well, we're about to pray. And then she said, well, okay. So then they sat down. Then I was talking to them about the Lord, and I, I was saying, this is why we're, we're going to pray, because, you know, just going to church doesn't really mean a lot. You need to have that relationship with the Lord. Well, to make a long story short, um, I feel like the girl that was originally just looking and staring at me and her little sister were extremely sincere about this, and um, we prayed, and the girl over here was a little distracted. The two friends, I'm not really positive about them, but they all did pray. They all prayed, so we, you know, bowed our head, and they repeated the prayer. I gave him a serious about God book and different ones. We're going to share one and the, you know, pamphlet and everything. And, um, but I was, I was just really excited about that. And then just to kind of take off on that one a little bit. And just a few minutes after that, I was with Sarah and Brianna. We kind of split our group and, um, I saw these two girls over at a table and I was kind of going, I said, Hey, you guys want to go talk to them? So I started over there, and Sarah thought I was going to take the lead. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit just said, told me to, like, turn around. You know, I saw these two ladies there at the counter. I said, no, Sarah, you do it. So she took care of that. And I don't know, she might be sharing about that one because that was awesome. But the, when I turned around, the, the lady that I was sharing with was a Spanish speaker. So I feel like the Lord just led me right to her and her daughter. And we had a long talk for, like, 20 minutes. She was actually Catholic background, but was very interested. She said she was... Christian as well, because she had accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, didn't have anywhere to go to church, and it was, we just had a really good conversation, and it was, I feel like it was the Lord just leading me to a Spanish speaker. That's really neat. Yeah, give the Lord a hand, guys. That was awesome. 
I know, I think Brianna and Sarah got to speak to a couple young ladies, and I'm not sure, did they end up praying with you guys? Yeah, so they, uh, two more young, probably teenage girls that uh, gave their lives to the Lord last night. Um, Aunt Karen and Melissa and I didn't get to pray prayer of salvation for anyone, but we, uh, we definitely got to plant some seeds last night. We had some interesting conversations. Um, we, uh, we got to pray, actually, with a lady who was a uh, pretty sincere um, Muslim lady, and she was very sweet. Um, her name was Sarah, and uh, she, she was seeking the truth. She knew, and, and she had had, and yeah, I hate the enemy. The enemy had lied to her and, 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 and had her pretty convinced in her way, and we weren't going to change her mind last night, but uh, what we did get her to do, um, we asked her if it would be all right if we prayed with her that, um, that God show show us the truth, all three of us. I said, you know, you're a woman of faith, Sarah. I can see that. I said, so are we. I said, I'd like, I said, your beliefs, though, are very different than ours. I said, so I'd like, uh, I'd like for us to know the truth. I said, would it be okay if, if I pray and ask God to show, to show us the truth? I said, not my truth, not your truth, but, but his truth. And, uh, I said, is that fair? And I looked, and she kind of thought for a second, and she said, yeah, yeah, that's fair. So, so Aunt Karen and I and her, we bowed our heads, and we prayed together, and we asked that God show her the truth. And, guys, who knows that God's going to respond to that. This, woman, this woman's heart was after the truth, right? She'd just been lied to by the enemy. The enemy's, it, Lord's not going to let that stay that way. So uh, I have absolute faith that he's going he's gonna to speak to her. He's going to bring her into the kingdom. And uh, so that was, that was one got to talk to a gentleman who uh, had nearly died one week before and had given his life to the Lord right after that. So uh, uh, that was that was interesting. Got to talk to another gentleman who had uh, given his life to the Lord while in prison a couple years ago and uh, is back home now living with his wife and got, got his life going in the right direction. So just some really neat things when you get out and you, uh, you get to talk about the Lord. <laughs> All right. And uh, Melissa's talking about there's a gentleman that... Uh, he, you know, he said he was a, he was a Christian, and, and he definitely knew the Bible. Um, he uh, <laughs> he was a little contentious with us, and um, but that's all right. We uh, we 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 spoke truth to him. We tried to love on him. Um, the interesting thing was he uh, we wanted to pray for him. He had he had something wrong with his elbow. I mean, it was it had a knot that was sticking out, probably an inch or more. Um, but he he didn't believe. He said he believed that God could heal, but that he didn't want to. And, and, I, and I said to him, I said, sir, I said, I don't think you understand. I said, you know, there's so, I said, I, I believe that you're saved. You know, you're telling me you, you know what you're doing. I said, but, you know, I said, there was so much more that God paid for on the cross. I said, he doesn't want you to walk around with this, this pain. I said, you know, um, I said, can, when you look at the Bible, did anyone that came to Jesus for healing, did he tell him no and walk away? And he was like, well, I just, I don't believe that. And he said, I, I you know, and he's like, now you're talking about religion. And, and he turned and he, he walked, you know, he turned and he walked away. And as he was walking away, I said, sir, I said, you know, I don't want to, I don't want you to be upset. But I said, there's more than what you have. And I said, that's all I want you to know is that God, God has more for you. I said, he didn't just die for your salvation. He died for your healing. And uh, he was like, oh, I got to go get on my bus. So we said, okay. And we, and, well, it was funny. He walked away and probably a minute later, he, uh, he walked back up and he said, well, do you guys have any, any literature or anything I can read? He said, I, he's like, I, I, he goes, uh, yeah, he, he talked about the two commandments that you should, uh, yeah, he knew the first two commands. He said, you know, love your Lord and, and love the, your neighbor as yourself. And, 
And he said, if you know those two, he said, you don't need any of the others. Well, okay, so, but I, Lord, I bless him. Let him find the fullness and the truth in you. But he came back, guys, and, and I really believe he came back because our heart was right. We were sincere. What we were speaking to him was truth, and I really believe the Holy Spirit put some conviction on him that, that he needed to come back. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's, you know, sometimes it's our job just to plant the seed, guys. Sometimes the Lord send someone else to water and someone else to harvest. So we got to pray for a, a man that had been homeless, been out of a job for a couple couple months. And uh, Brian Washington was his name. He was a sweet man. He, he knew the Lord. You could see it all over his countenance. But we got to pray for him, and then we, I blessed him. And uh, so that, you know, I believe that. Fernando, do you have something? Yeah, you did talk to me about before we went out there that we'd probably get a chance to pray for a homeless person. So that may be the guy that we talked to last night. So, And you know what, guys? We met with some people that weren't real happy to talk with us last night. And we had some other people that were, you know, not real nice to different members. But that's all right because the Lord, you know, the Lord sees that. And, and he's, uh, he's faithful to wash us clean from anything that we encounter while we're out there. And, uh, and, and I believe he did that last night. And a lot of good things were, were so, a lot of good seeds were sown. There were salvations last night. So thank you for all those that came out. And uh, I think it's good just to talk about it. Let the church know that, that this is happening because uh, not a lot of people are out spreading the word. And that's, that's what we're called to do. So, all right, guys. Um, about to get started here. We're going to talk about William and Catherine Booth and the Salvation Army. Uh, before we do, though, guys, let's go ahead and uh, let's bow our head in prayer. Lord, I just, I lift up this time to you, Father, as I do every time I get up on, in front of this podium, Lord. I ask you to help us to receive everything that you have for us tonight, Lord. Take the truths, Father, that you imparted to in the lives of William and Catherine Booth. Let us receive of those, Father. We don't want to start on our own, Father. We want to stand on the works of the, the fathers and the mothers of the faith that came before us, Lord. We thank you for their lives. We honor them, Lord. We honor what you did through their lives, Lord. And we ask that, Father, the truth that you want us to receive tonight, it become part of our spiritual DNA so that as we go forward, Lord, in life, we're able to, to literally to stand on what they, their ministry has started and to walk forward from there. We thank you, Lord, for this. I pray that, Father, you, each person is able to give us their best ear. For those that are joining us via live stream, we love you guys. Thank you, whether you're watching this now or you're going to watch it later. I, I, I pray that you receive the fullness of what the Lord has for you in this. Lord, we thank you for this, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, does everyone ever, did everyone get a handout? Yeah, yeah. Uh, for anyone joining via live stream, uh, the sermon notes are out on the live stream page under the website fnirevival.com. Um, all right. So we're going to talk about William and Catherine Booth. I want, to, I want to read a quote to you guys from William Booth. We want men who are set on soul saving, who are not ashamed to let everyone know that this is the one aim and object of their life and that they make everything secondary to this. Guys, William and Catherine Booth founded the Salvation Army with, with one thing in mind, and that was to save souls. It was to reach out to the poor and to the destitute, to those that were in a rough spot, and to offer them a helping hand, to lift them up out of the circumstances they were in, and then to tell them about Jesus. And the time that they lived, guys, was, uh, I always tell you, I always want to set the stage so that you get a picture in your mind of, 
of the, the time and the place that these guys were ministering. So this was in, um, this, the, the time that the Salvation Army was founded was in the 1860s, but this was right in the time that England was going through the Industrial Revolution. So think about that. Up until this time, pretty much everything that you did, if you wanted to buy a shirt, if you needed shoes, pants, whatever you needed, someone, there was a craftsman that made it by hand because there wasn't, there wasn't machinery, there wasn't a factory, this wasn't a, uh, there wasn't a mass production of things. So you had a, a whole group of your um, country and your economy that were craftsmen, people that made shirts, people that made shoes, people that made pants, people that made, I mean, anything, carts to, to carry your things in. Everything was made in a shop, typically by hand. So now you have the Industrial Revolution. What does that mean? So machinery comes into play. You have factories. All of a sudden, you start mass-producing things. Well, what, what happens when that occurs is you had a whole segment of your economy, um, these craftsmen that used to have, make a pretty good wage. They had a skill, right? They, were, they weren't just your average person. They had a, a skill that they did. Now that skill is no longer needed. People aren't coming to your shop to buy your shoes anymore. They're not coming to buy, to get shirts tailored and to have pants made because they're going to Walmart. Well, they're not Walmart. Uh, but they were going, uh, and all of these things were being made now in mass productions and in, in, in factories and things. Now, that, that did lead to jobs in factories, but those jobs typically tended to be much, pay much less than what these people were used to making. And uh, the, the conditions in those factories weren't, weren't safe. We're going to talk a little later about a, a particular matchmaking factory and, and kind of what happened there. Um, I say all that to say the economy in the country, I mean, sometimes we talk about the economy's not real great in America right now. Think, I mean, back then it was much, much worse. Every, so many people were out of jobs. They were losing their houses. They didn't have money to buy food. And unfortunately, when that happens, a lot of times the enemy will take advantage of that. And when people are down, he'll come in and, and you know, he'll start whispering into their ear about how bad their life is. And, and then, you know, he'll, he'll try, people try to, let's say, self-medicate. They'll go out and they'll, uh, they're drinking alcohol and they're, and they're doing things that are harmful to themselves, but they, they don't have any hope. They don't have anything that, that makes life, uh, that makes them think that their life is going to get better. So this is the time that, uh, that William and Catherine Booth were born into. This was the society around them. Um, I'm going to read I'm going to read a quote here. Uh, so bad was London that one, one writer described it as a squalid labyrinth with half a million people, 290 to an acre. So if, if you guys know how big an acre of land is, imagine 290 people living on every acre of land. In every fifth house, a gin shop. A gin shop being a place, guys, that sells alcohol. Most of these gin shops had special steps to help even the tiniest of children reach the counter. So every fifth house in London is selling booze, and each of these houses has steps up to the counter so that little kids, little four-year-olds, five-year-olds, six-year-olds can go in and, and buy the alcohol, whether it's them drinking it themselves, their parents, just, I want you to have that picture of, of what they grew up in and the time, the time that they were living in. Um, so William and Catherine, their heart was, they looked around and they're like, my goodness, look at these people. They're, they're so poor, not just physically, but spiritually, right? They, emotionally, they have no hope and, and they're destitute and, and their, hearts, their, their hearts cried out for these people. Um, the interesting thing, though, 
so in that they had a they had a common a commonality, right? They, their hearts were both after helping the poor and the destitute. But if you look at their lives, and especially from their childhoods up until that point, they're very different. William Booth was a very strong, strapping young man. He was very athletic. He was well liked. He was kind of the I don't want to say like the class clown, but he was he was very well thought of in school. Um, so you know, just a very healthy young man. Catherine, on the other hand, and her her maiden name was Mumford before she was married, um, was very sickly. Uh, she almost died a number of times as a youth, and there were times where she would have to miss entire years of school because she was too sick to get to leave her house. She had to stay home, uh, but at the same time, she was very intelligent. Um, she had learned to read by the age of three. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty amazing. By the time that she was 12, she had read the Bible front to back over eight times. It said starting at the age of three, she would stand up on a little soap tub and read out loud the Bible to in her family. So isn't that kind of cool? A little three-year-old standing up in the living room reading out the Bible to you. Um, but again, she was intensely compassionate and caring for those that were hurt, that were hurting, those who were down. Um, and it's funny, you know, she was physically, she was not a strong lady. She, it says that she was very petite, um, but she, it says she was a defender of the weak and the helpless. And you're sitting there, and I'm, I'm picturing this, you know, this short little lady. They said she had black hair. She said very pretty, but very thin, very frail. And, and yet she was known to stand up to people physically at times and defend those that were in trouble. So um, William Booth, uh, on the other hand, guys, so I said I talked about how, how intelligent Catherine was and how scholarly intelligent, book, book smart she was. William was people smart. He could read people. He was not book smart. When he went to his first Bible school, they said that when he was in class, uh, the teachers kind of questioned whether even he should be there or not because he, you know, his ability to just sit down and read a book and to, you know, have deep thought about it, that, that, wasn't, that wasn't a strength of his, right? But yet the first time that the Bible students went out to preach and they went out street witnessing, uh, he saw 15 people get saved the first time they, he, that they went out together. Just, and no one else really saw anyone get saved, and he saw 15. And I think the, the, the Bible uh, professors were like, Oh, okay. So this guy's got a different gifting, right? There's a, there may, maybe there's the book smarts, but he, uh, he was definitely a gifted evangelist. Um, his heart was for the poor of society, for those that others would look over um, or were looked down upon. Um, and interestingly enough, so one other commonality, um, both Catherine and William loved God, and they loved him so much that they weren't going to allow uh, the, the pressures of man or the pressures of even their peers to affect them. Both of them got kicked out of their churches based on standing up for what they believed in. So, um, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that as we go, as we go later, later down through this. So, all right. So William, uh, William from a very young age felt the presence of God in his life and he felt a calling to evangelism. When he was 15 years old, he, uh, he attended a uh, sermon, a revival, whatever you want to call it. There was a traveling evangelist by the name of Isaac Marsden. And during this meeting, uh, the, the evangelist Marsden uh, said, a soul dies every minute. And he was talking about how many people at that time in England were passing away without knowing the Lord. 
And that really struck William. And you guys might have had this before where someone says something or you read something, and it's like the Holy Spirit just drills you with it. Like you know in your spirit, like that word by itself spoken by man shouldn't have as much meaning as what you know you just felt it, felt it to mean. Or the same thing as you read something, sometimes something will just hit you. Well, that, that happened to William when this man said a soul, a soul dies every minute. That happened when he was 15 years old. That stuck with him all the way through his death. He, he, he brought that message. Almost every time he preached or he talked to, um, as we learn a little bit later, the officers in the Salvation Army, he would talk about this experience. Um, so shortly thereafter that, at that point, William hadn't given his life to the Lord. Um, but he, shortly thereafter that, he gave, he gave his life to the Lord, and he began uh, going out and witnessing and street preaching. Um, he lived in London at the time. Uh, he went to an area called the Bottoms, which was, was the slum. Um, so you guys familiar with slum? You know what that means? Like that's the bad part of town. That's where you don't, that's where most people avoid, right? That's where, uh, you know, you don't, I wouldn't go down there wearing my shiny watch because I'm probably not going to walk out still wearing that shiny watch. So th- this, is where, this is where he went. Uh, if you can imagine, you know, when he gets there, you're not necessarily, uh, there's not a, pe- a group of people sitting in a church waiting for you to preach to them there. I mean, these are people that are out in the streets. They're drinking, they're partying, they're, they're doing what they do. Try, and, you know, guys, all they're trying to do is find something that makes them feel better, even for a little bit of time. And uh, this world is full of, and even I think more so now, it's full of distractions. It's, th- it's full of things that can make you numb to the pain. It can make you feel better for a little bit, but then it cycles back around. If it's not of Jesus, that you may feel better for a little bit. You may forget about things for a little bit, and then that ends, and you're right back, and you're where you were before. Sometimes you're even worse off than you are before, and William realized that. So he went to these people. He went, he shot his feet up in the gospel of peace, right? He went out with the good news. And uh, he went to tell people about this. But who knows that that's not necessarily... We were talking last night, Fernando, right? We were standing out in front of a movie theater. And uh, pretty pretty good mix of people. I mean, the people there weren't in too bad a shape. Um, and yet we, we met with some resistance. We met with some people that weren't real happy to talk with us. Uh, well, and, and imagine where he's going. So you don't just go there without being, you know, being prayed up and, and having the Holy Spirit come with you. So uh, he goes down to the bottoms. Uh, he brings a friend of his with him, another preacher, and uh, they, uh, they go and they set up and they stand out in front of this man's house that's up the street a little bit from the bars. And what they said that he didn't know was uh, this man's name was uh, Bessem Jack, and uh, this man was known as a notoriously rowdy drunkard. So if you guys know what rowdy is, think about uh, the Cowboys fans after you guys score a touchdown, they're all jumping around and going crazy. Well, that's how this man was all the time. He'd go get drunk, and he'd be, he'd be out, and he'd you know, maybe causing fights, and he's yelling at people. Well, William sets up his little, uh, his little preaching area right in front of this man's house. So him and his friend, they stand up, and they sing a couple worship songs, right, just like we do to invite the Holy Spirit in and to uh, set the mood. And, and he starts to preach. And uh, I wanna, I'm going to read you what, uh, kind of what he said. He says, friends. He says, I want to put a few straight questions to your soul. He basically says to them, I'm not here to mess around, guys. I'm not here to tickle your ears and tell you how to feel better. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you questions that are going to convict you. And he, and he looks at me and he says, how many of you have children at home without shoes on their feet? And he says, how many of you have wives at home 
sitting in dark houses waiting for you to come home without money? And how many of you are going to go away from here to spend your money on drink when your wife needs that money just to buy food to feed your children? That's not an easy message, right? I mean, you're not real happy about, you know, that, that, that's not a message that makes you feel good. Um, but these people, where they were at, they, they needed, they needed, sometimes you need to give them a hug. Sometimes they need a swift kick in the pants. <laughs> these people needed a swift kick in the pants. Um, so right then, the front door of Bessem Jack's house comes open, right? This is the notoriously rowdy drunkard. And he starts in a straight line. He's going he's gonna to tell these preachers what's up. And right as he gets close enough to be within earshot of, of William and uh, his friend preaching, William's eyes meet him, face, looking straight at him. And he says, and remember, he's never met him, so the Lord gives him this word of inspiration. He looks right at him and he says, Jack, God loves your wife, and so did you once. Oh, ouch, you know. Again, you've never met this man. He doesn't know your name. How would he know your name? He calls you out in front of all your friends and says, you used to love your wife, but you're not doing it now. And, uh, and it says that Jack froze. I'd freeze too. <laughs> and, uh, and, and William continued. He said, can you remember how much you loved her and how much you cherished her when you first met her? And, uh, you know, Bessem Jack now, he's feeling a little convicted. He he starts looking at the ground, and he, and he kind of nods. He goes, yeah. And, uh, and William continues. He says, well, Jack, God wants you to know that he loves you like that, and he loves you with a love far deeper and greater than that. And by this point, guys, everyone in the crowd is just silent, and they're staring at William because they know this man. They know this guy. He's, he's the drunk guy. He's the loud guy. He's the guy that gets in fights. And now he's, he's laid bare. All his junk is out in front of everyone. And, uh, but yet the Lord's telling him, I, I love you, even as you are, as you are right now. And uh, Jack looks up, and, and he, he asks the question. He goes, me? He's asking, the Lord loves me? And uh, William says, yes, Jack, you. He says, now, Jack, come here and kneel down and tell the Lord that you love him too and ask him to forgive you. And uh, Jack, that's him, Jack comes up, and he does that. He kneels down on the street, and he gives his life to the Lord right there. So yeah, exactly. We can clap. It's an awesome story. So, you know, it's uh, it's like what our what our street witnessing team see. And uh, guys, the angels in heaven rejoice as much now when a soul gets saved as it did back then, and they will continue and going forward. Um, but think about not just Jack. I think about everyone that just saw that. All the people that were there drinking, and all the people that were in the street, and the crowd that gathered around. They saw the worst of the worst, right? I mean, and not, and that's not how God saw Jack, but that's how they saw Jack. And they just saw God touch him and tell him he loved him. And they saw the man give his life to Jack, or give his life to the Lord. Um, so William, realizing that this is an opportunity, he says to these people, he, he, he prays for all these people. And he said, and this is a, I'm assuming this is a Saturday night, because he says, I want you all tomorrow, tomorrow morning, I'm going to come get you, and we're all going to go to church together, right? And these people are like, yeah, let's go to, you know, they just saw how much God loves them. They're like, let's go to church. So he, uh, he comes back the next morning, probably a couple hours later. He gathers them all up. He marches them down to their Methodist church. He brings them in the front door. He marches them right up to the front, and he sits them in the front, in the front like three or four rows. And uh, they go through the service. Um, they finish up. And William, I think, is kind of expecting, he sees the pastor, and he's expecting, you know, hey, look at all these people I brought in that just got saved. 
Well, the pastor comes up and he, he yells at William. He's like, what are you doing bringing all these poor people in and putting them in the front of my church? He said, the front rows are reserved for those who have the means to help the Methodist cause. Basically, for those that have enough money to help fund the church. He said, you can bring the poor people in. I'm okay with that. He said, but bring them in the side door where no one else sees them. And then there's an area over there where there's a wall up, a partition. He said, set them back there so that the other people don't have to see them. And probably to smell them, right? I mean, these people probably don't smell real great. But he said, don't, don't bring them into the church. Don't bring them into the main part of the congregation. You, you know, set them off in the corner. They can come, but, but don't let anyone else see them. Well, you know, William's crushed. That hurts his heart. He knows that's not the Lord's heart in this. And it's funny, throughout his life, William actually met more, um, not condemnation, but uh, he, he, got, he got, like, rebuked, basically, from within the church because of the type of people he saved and, honestly, the number of people that he was saving. Um, later in life, he, uh, he joined, after he got kicked out of the Methodist church, he joined a church called the New Connection Church, um, and he went out and did a lot of street witnessing and uh, saw a whole bunch of people saved, and they, they took his credentials away. They said, they, they said, you're taking the cream of the crop. You're just saving the easy people to save. And they're like, and they said, you're saving too many people. We don't have enough spaces in our churches to handle all these people that you're saving. So they took his, they took his ministry license. They said, you can't be an evangelist anymore. We'll, we'll let you be a pastor, but you stay in the church and pre- preach in there because you're bringing in too many of the, of the wrong type of people. And I'm sure William was like, Lord, I know that's not, that's not your heart, right? I mean, the Lord will leave the 99 to go get the one. Um, and as, a, as an evangelist, William would often see uh, six or 700 people saved at his different uh, revival meetings. So he had, he had a very, he had a, an evangelistic gift. Um, you know, in our lives, and I don't know how many of you saw this, but I, it, make, it makes me think of like a Steve Hill, right? I don't know how many of you got to actually see Pastor Steve preach when, uh, when he was alive. Um, but I can tell you, after having already been saved and knowing that I was saved, I would sit in Pastor Steve's sermons and listen to him preach, and I'd be like, i got to go to the front and get saved again. I mean, it was just he had that type of anointing of evangelism on him. And it sounds like William Booth had that same type of thing on his life. Uh, His first revival that he did um, after he left the New Connection uh, organization, he went out on his own. It lasted 18 months and saw over 7,000 people get saved. So... Um, but what, guys, what's interesting was at that time, Methodism, it was changing. If you remember, we studied the lives, guys, of the Wesley brothers, George Whitfield, and, and they were very much about going out to the street and the people and seeing people saved and seeing the power of God. Um, and the Methodists, as they started to grow, instead of it being about the people and the power of God to change lives, it started to become about regulation about governance and how do we how do we keep our organization healthy and how do we grow it and how do we make sure we have enough money to keep going forward and you know i always think about that scripture it says you know lord let, let, let uh, i think it was john that said that with about jesus less of me i have to decrease so that he can increase and that's how we should everything we do guys in ministry and in life how can how can this be less about me and more about god 
Because the more I can make it about God and the less about me, the more successful, the more fruitful it's going to be, right? And unfortunately, the, the Methodist church at that time was, was kind of the opposite way. It was becoming about religion and regulation and governance and man-made stuff and less about what God was doing and how they could affect people's lives. All right, so I'm going to transition a little bit. I told you a little bit about William, his life. We're going to talk about Catherine. Catherine was William's wife. Um, she also had some problems with the Methodist church at the time. Um, she, guys, what, you, what you're going to... All right, actually, I'm going, to, I'm going to back up for a second. Big picture. I want you guys, to, as I'm talking to you, I want you to see, I want you to think about a couple things. One, um, both William and Catherine's life was about serving the poor and the destitute, those that no one else really wanted to go to. Second thing I want you guys to notice is they're very different. Their strengths, I started talking a little bit, the things that were William's strengths were weaknesses for Catherine. And a lot of the things that were Catherine's strengths were weaknesses for William. Uh, I'm going to talk to you about each of their lives separately. I'm going to talk to you about the love that they had because it's really sweet. Some of the things I'm going to read to you as, as how they felt about each other. There's such a, hum, there's such a great, deep, just well of love there. Um, and when you bring them together, their, their strengths covered each other's weaknesses. And, and out of that, they were able to form the Salvation Army, which, as I talked about, is... I mean, if you look across the course of history, this is probably the most successful charity ever. It's affected more people. Um, now, what it is today is not exactly as what it was founded to be, um, you know, but I, I believe that the Lord, the Lord can change that if he so desires. Um, but, I mean, even today, they're in 126 different countries. They have 25 to 30,000 full-time ministers, and they're still about... Jesus, and they're still about salvations. It may not be as forefront as it was in the beginning, um, but that came out of these two people's lives. And, and so as I talk to you about that, guys, I want you to notice the differences in their lives, and I want you to notice the love they have, and then I want you to notice how they come together. Because as I was doing this and preparing this lesson, what the Lord was speaking to me about was this is a shadow and a type of the church and the body of Christ. We're going to have weaknesses, right, guys? There's going to be things in our ministry um, We've got some very great strengths. There's going to be some other things that we're not as advanced in the kingdom in. But there's other ministries that are going to kind of look the opposite of us. There's going to be things that they're not real strong in that we are. Um, if we have a love for them as brothers and sisters in Christ, and, and we come together in unity with them, the Lord can use that. He can use their strengths to cover our weaknesses. He can use our strengths to cover their weaknesses. And he's going to accomplish what he wants to through the body as a whole. So as, as we go through this, guys, I want you to think about that. I want you to hear that, and then I want you to think about where we are today and, and how, we can be, how we can be in love with our brothers and sisters in Christ and how we can be in union with them. Because uh, the Lord says that where the brethren dwell in unity, that is where he commands his blessing in life. And uh, So as we go through this, I want you to think about that. All right, so we're zooming back down. We're at the macro level. We're going back down to the micro level, guys. So Catherine, she was a an ardent defender of the weak. And I'm going to share some stories with you here in a second where you'll see that. Um, she was one that, she was very justice and truth-based, right? She, she couldn't stand by and watch something unjust happening without, without saying something about it, without putting something forth. And again, this is kind of funny, right? Because we're talking about a pale little, I mean, she wasn't a well-built woman. I mean, she was a, a kind of a frail lady, but the heart inside of her was mighty and she was a warrior, 
Um, so one of the things that was happening at this time, I told you that the Methodist Church was kind of going off track of where it should have been. Um, there was a group within the Methodist Church that saw this, and they spoke about it, and they tried to tell people, look, we need to get back to what our founders founded us on. We need to be out winning souls. We need to be preaching the truth. We need to, you know, we need to be about God's business and less about religion and man's business. Um, and th that group was called the Reformers. Well, the, uh, the people that were the, the governing body of the Methodist Church, they didn't really like that. <laughs> they, they didn't like being called out like that. And uh, they kicked out of the Methodist Church a whole bunch of these people. Well, Catherine, like, she, she looked and she says, that's not right, guys. You, can't, you shouldn't do that. These people aren't, they're not trying to hurt us. They're, they're telling us where, we're, where we've got this issue. <laughs> and they said, oh, that, that, I'm glad you feel that way. Okay, go. And uh, they, kicked, they kicked her out as well. So um, William was kicked out of the church for bringing in, for, for witnessing too well and bringing in too many people. And Catherine was kicked out of the church for saying, we're not living right, and we need to get back to preaching the gospel and living a holy, in a holy manner. So uh, I don't think that the Lord's going to have any problem with, uh, with them when they get to heaven and they talk about this. So, um, All right, guys, I'm going to share a couple stories with you uh, about Catherine and her being a defender of the weak. So when Catherine was younger, she was riding in a carriage. And I told you that, guys, that she spent a lot of her young her time as a youth in, in a very sick state. Um, she had to miss years of school and things. So she's in this carriage, and while she's, as they're driving along, she sees a young boy, and he's got a hammer, and he's beating his donkey with a hammer. And uh, Catherine, she couldn't handle it. I mean, that was like, I mean, she, so she, she yells at the carriage to stop, and she jumps out. And she runs over to the boy, and she takes the hammer away from him, and she starts just yelling at him and saying, you know, leave the animal alone and all that, until the boy starts crying and agrees to, you know, to stop, and he runs off. Well, Catherine, at that point, she was so physically weak that she almost fainted after that and had to carry her back to the carriage and bring her home. But she, even in that state, she, was, she wasn't going to let that animal be harmed that way. She was going to stand up because it wasn't able to help itself. Another story from when she was younger uh, she saw a man, uh, this man was drunk, and didn't know what he had done, but the constable, who was like the police officer at that time, was leading him towards the jail. Well, while he was doing it, this man was so drunk he could barely walk. The constable was basically carrying him, and there was a group of people that were there taunting him. They were yelling at him. They were throwing stones at him, um, and, and it hurt Catherine's heart. And Catherine it was a very um, strong believer in, in not drinking, so uh, she... Even though this man was drunk, she, and she knew that drinking wasn't right, it, it hurt her heart to see these people harming him. And, and again, little girl, right? So it says that she, she walks up through the crowd. And I, and I can just picture all these guys, you know, this tall, this little girl, this tall, kind of weaving her way through them. She walks right up to the drunk man, and she reaches up, and she grabs a hold of his hand, and she starts walking beside him. And... Uh, they said that the people that were there that had been, you know, throwing rocks at him and, 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 and taunting him, they kind of stopped. They were taken aback by this little girl. Um, and the constable just kept walking, and they said that as, as she walked with them, that the man almost sobered up. And I just imagine it was the presence of the Lord right there, um, and, and he, he was able to stand up. And the constable led him to the jail, but he, he was able to walk on his own from that point. So... And, you know, it reminded me of, uh, it honestly reminded me of the story of, of Jesus with the woman that was caught in adultery, right? 
And that's what I put the scripture here, John 8. Uh, and on yours, guys, I apologize. I think it says 821. It's actually 82 through 11. So if you go to look for John 821, you're not going to find it. But, uh, um, but I'm going to read that to you. It says, at dawn, at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people had gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman who was caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? And they were using the question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and he started to write in the ground with his finger. And when they kept questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard him began to, uh, to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And uh, she looked at Jesus and said, No, no one, sir. And Jesus said, then, nor do, then neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. And I just, I'm picturing little Catherine, right? And here's this crowd all around this man, and they're attacking him. And in, 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 in a sense, justly so. I mean, he, he, had, he had broken the law, obviously. The constable that was there, the policeman was there. He was a drunkard. And yet she just had a mercy and a grace that she extended to him. And with that, all of these people were convicted. They, they stopped going after the man, and, and he, went on, he went on. So awesome, awesome things. Uh, one other thing. Is, and I thought this was just cute because it speaks to as a child. So, you know, to get treats, to get candies, to get sweets and things as a, as a young person in England at that time, that was a real, that was a real treat. Um, well, she, she gave up hers, and she told her parents, don't, don't spend money to buy me candies and treats. She said, take that money that you were going to do and, and send it to the missionaries that are out doing uh, the work of, of Jesus. So uh, it just spoke to her heart and, and kind of what she was about. She also had a very uh, intimate relationship with, with the Holy Spirit. Um, when she was saved, she, she went through a time of questioning her salvation, um, and it took her and the Holy Spirit really connecting for her to, to feel, um, to, to know and to understand that she was saved. And there's, if you guys have a chance, you may want to, if you didn't read the book, um, this was a long one. I think there's about 80 pages in this chapter in the God's uh, General's Revivalist book. There's a neat, there's, a, there's three or four pages that talks just about this, and um, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go into that now, but if you get a chance, you may want to read the book. Um, street witnessing. So uh, later on at one point in their life, uh, Catherine was going to church, and uh, William was pastor at the church at that time. She was running late, and as she was walking by all these houses, and remember I told you guys, in London at that time, 290 people to an acre, so they were all stacked on top of one another. And she was passing by these um, stoops or front porches, and she saw all these people just sitting there looking, you know, despaired and despondent. Um, and the Holy Spirit spoke to her and said, would you not be doing more service and acting more like your Redeemer if you turned into some of these houses and spoke to the sinners, invited them to service, rather than just going and enjoying it for yourself? And... Uh, so she, so Catherine was like, oh, Lord, you know, because you get that conviction and you're like, all right, I know what, I know what happens next, right? So um, 
So she turns in and she sees a woman that's sitting on her porch and she's crying and she stops to talk with her. And she, talk, she starts talking to the woman. She's like, what's wrong? And basically this woman's um, husband was a drunkard and had been beating her. And she was sitting on the front porch. And, Ka- and uh, Catherine was like, well, why don't you come to service with me? And she's like, I can't leave my husband. He'll get upset if, if I leave. So Catherine says, let me, let me go talk to him. And she's like, no, you don't. And again, Catherine, right? She's, the, the woman says, you, you don't want to talk to him. I can't guarantee your safety. I don't, he, he'll probably beat you too if we go up there. And Catherine says, I'm not afraid. It's okay. You know, she said, just take me to him. So uh, the, woman, the woman brings her upstairs to, to meet her husband. And uh, when she gets up there, Catherine felt the presence of the Holy Spirit on her. Um, and she wasn't afraid. And he, the, the Spirit led her to be very, very strong in, in her words for uh, this man. And, and she basically, she spoke to this man who was sitting there almost half passed out drunk and told him that... Uh, you know, his life was embarrassing, basically, and that he was in a detestable condition. Um, so it reminded me of how William spoke to all those people on the street with like with with uh, Jack Besom, right? And he said, you know, he said, how many of you are how many of you are going to drink when your children don't have shoes and your wife's sitting in the dark? Well, that's kind of what this woman, this is what Catherine did with this woman's husband. She said, you know, your life, this is ridiculous. You're you're detestable. I can't believe you're living like this. Um, and she, but she gave him the gospel. She said, but there's hope. There is good news. There's better for you. Um, and she spoke of the parable of the prodigal son. And while she's telling this, this man's, the Holy Spirit's working on this man, right? And, and his heart starts to change. And uh, he sobers up while he, she's talking to him. And he gets to the point where he, he actually received Jesus. And he signed what was called the pledge book at that time, which basically said that you pledged that you were going to live a different life, that you were going to live for the Lord. Um, and then she invited him to church from there. So, again, though, that, that comes about from knowing the Holy Spirit and having that relationship with him. Um, for a long time, she, she resisted doing any type of public preaching. And, and Williams, you know, would tell her, you know, you know the Word of God. You, you've got the Spirit of God in you. And she, would, she, would, she wouldn't do it. Um, well, she finally felt the Lord uh, kind of prod her that it's, it's, time, to, it's time to preach. Um, so she told, she told William she wanted to preach. And then in between when he, she actually called him up on stage while he was preaching, she called him down and, and said, I want to preach. And he said, okay, you'll preach tonight's service. Well, in between there, um, she said she, her faith was strengthened because the enemy came to her, right? The enemy spoke to her and said, you shouldn't be preaching. You're just going to embarrass yourself. And she said at that, she said she was wavering back and forth until she, until the enemy said that. And then she said, I knew at that point that the Lord was the one that told me to do this because the Lord would never tell me that I was going to embarrass myself and that I shouldn't do this. She's like, so I knew it was the enemy lying to me. She said, and, and she knew she was going to preach. So she got up and she preached on two verses, Ephesians 5.18, which says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the spirit, which again, given guys, as I've talked about the, the, the time frame she was living in and the people she was preaching to, very relevant. And then 1 John 2, 27, that says, As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you, but his, as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as, he, just as it has taught you, remain in him. So basically it was, um, don't get drunk, guys, and you need to have a relationship with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will teach you what you need to do from this point forward. So... Purity in life 
and intimacy with the Holy Spirit. Those were, those were two big things with Catherine. All right, so we've talked a little bit about William's life, right? We've talked a little bit about Catherine's life. Uh, now I want to talk to you guys about how they came together because they were very different people. But just like two puzzle pieces look very different, sometimes they fit together, right? And if they fit together perfectly, those puzzle pieces, it's tough to get them apart if they fit. And that's what the Lord did. One strength filled the gap in the weakness of the other. Um, it was interesting. They actually met um, after both of them had been kicked out of the Methodist ministry. They were uh, at a reformers meeting, um, and they met there. Later on, about a month later, they met at a church service, and while they were there, Catherine got sick. Um, she was going to leave to go home, and the gentleman who was kind of a, kind of a patron to both of them, he was actually paying William at that point to, go, to allow him to go and preach. Um, and he knew Catherine, he asked William to um, accompany Catherine back to her house. And, and so it said they took a carriage ride together back to her home. And during that time, um, it, it said that uh, they had a, what was the exact phrasing? Catherine said it was as if they had been in love for years, had been separated, and just just come back together to know one another at that time. And they said they talked to each other, and they both prayed that if that the Lord take away this relationship because they didn't want it if it wasn't from the Lord. But the more they were together, the more it was obvious that the Lord had put them together. Um, so they were, they uh, actually were only seeing each other for a month before they got engaged. Now it's interesting. They they get one month to get engaged, and then it was like three or four years before they got married after they were engaged. Um, but they, they fit together well. William was this very bold, very zealous um, evangelist, and he was go out and get the people saved. Um, but there wasn't a whole lot. Once he, was, once he got him saved, it was kind of like, okay, now what do we do with them? And Catherine was kind of the back end of it, right? She was very grounded in the Word of God. Like we said, she'd read the Bible eight times by the time she was 12. Um, and she, she kind of took the people after William got them saved, and she gave them a structure to go into. She taught them how to study the Word of God and how to take care of them. William, it says, was the liberator of souls. Catherine was the administrator, making sure that those that William set free found their callings and carried on with God. William was the flamboyant leader, and Catherine the manager who structured the day-to-day -day activities. What I want you to see, though, guys, is even though they were so different, they were so utterly in love with each other that it just it, it allowed the Lord to work through them I want you to listen this is something that Catherine wrote uh, to William she said our hearts are now indeed one so that so one that disunion would be more bitter than death so she's basically saying if, that it would be worse to be uh, separated from William than it would be to be dead the thought of our walking through life together perfectly united together enjoying its sunshine and battling with its storms by softest sympathy, sharing every smile and every tear, and with thorough unanimity, performing all its momentous duties, it is to me exquisite happiness, the highest earthly bliss that I desire. We have acknowledged God from the beginning. We have sought his will, and we do now love him more for the love we bear each other. And that's the way it should be, guys. For those of you that are married, you know, it's awesome to have a, a wife that you love and that you, that you know the Lord's put you with and that you're a better person because of that. And because of your love for the Lord and your love for each other, you grow closer to that person and you grow closer to the Lord. And that's what she's saying here with this. 
listen to this, guys. This is right before she died. Um, this is what she said was her greatest sorrow. So this is the thing that was going to be hardest when she died for her to handle. She says, her greatest sorrow is that I cannot be with you, you being William, when the clouds lower, when friends turn and leave you, and when sorrows come sweeping over you. I shall no longer be there to put my arms around you and to cheer you on. So basically what she was saying was the hardest part for her was she knew that she knew the work that they did, that not everyone was going to be a fan and that there were going to be people that mistreated her husband. And uh, she said the hardest part about going to die was that she knew she wasn't going to be there to hug him anymore and to tell him he was doing a good job and to cheer on her husband. And guys, that's, that's a helpmate. That's a Proverbs 31 wife right there, and that's, that's awesome. So, um, and William had a tremendous love for Catherine. Um, there, were, there were some, and again, guys, <laughs> I took 80 pages and tried to condense them into four, so I couldn't give you everything that they said to each other. I really recommend you go read it. But this is something that he spoke at her funeral, and uh, it spoke to me as well. It says, if you had had a tree that had grown up in your garden from under your window, which for 40 years had been your shadow from the burning sun, whose flowers had been the adornment and the beauty of your life, and whose fruit had been almost the stay of your existence. And the gardener had come along and swung his glittering axe and cut it down before your eyes. I think you would feel as though you had a blank in your life. So he was basically saying his wife had been there for him through thick and thin. And there are times when he needed her words just to kind of keep going forward with what he was doing. Um, and then this scenario, the, the gardener being the Lord had, you know, had taken, had taken her and I'm sure he was happy for her. Cause I know that he knows that she was up with Jesus, but he's saying there's still a pretty big gap in my life right now. And he went on to talk about her and he says the three qualities that he loved and he admired most about Catherine. He said, number one, she was good. He said she was good because she was washed in the blood of the lamb and she knew it. Number two, that she was loved and that her soul was filled with a deep compassion. And guys, if you think about some of the stories I've told you about her going you know, into the apartment of the drunk man to save him, going and saving the donkey, and, and, and her whole life was devoted to reaching out to those that, that the society had said weren't worth reaching out to, the downcast, the homeless, the drunkards. Her and her husband made their whole life's ministry about helping those people get back on their feet. Um, and number three, she was a warrior. She liked the fight. Even though physically she was a frail woman, her spirit within her made her mighty. And uh, she was not one to look at others and say, go. But she was one that would say, let me go. Let me go, let me go stand up to the injustice. So guys, when you're in unity, when you have a man and a woman, and they're in such great love, and, and, and you have two that are agreeing together, Deuteronomy 32, 30 says, one man can chase a thousand, but two can put 10,000 to flight. What that means, guys, is what one can do one, if one can put a thousand, two, two, you would think if one can do a thousand, then two should do two thousand. But that's not how it works. When two come together, it's multiplied. There's a catalyst. You can do more than what you can by yourself. So two can put ten thousand. So just as it was with William and Catherine, that's the challenge we have today with the body of Christ, right? We need to be with our brothers and sisters because we, as one ministry, we may put a thousand. But together, if our hearts are unified with our brothers and our sisters, under what the Lord's saying, right? Jesus is the headship. He gives the direction. If we join with them, we can put 10,000 to flight. And finally, in Psalms 133, 1 through 3, it says, Behold how good and pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity, for there the Lord commanded his blessings. 
So again, guys, this is a shadow and a type of the body of Christ. And, and these two people together in great love, in unity, they formed, this, they formed this ministry, the Salvation Army. It started in 1865. Um, originally, it was called the East London Mission, or Christi Christian Mission. Um, and, and I want to read to you, there's a scripture verse, I believe it's Matthew, yeah, Matthew 25, 35 to 42. Um, but this is basically what their ministry was founded on. So I'm going to go ahead and we'll read this to you. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and yet you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you as hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you to drink, something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then he will look to those on his left and he will say, depart from me, you who are cursed. Into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and for his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. And I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. And I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they will also answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? Or as a stranger, or needing clothes, or, or sick, or in prison? And did we not help you? And he will reply to them, truly I tell you, Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. As that's those verses in the, the verse that William, or the, the saying that William heard, one soul dies every minute. Those are types of things that if you allow them to get down into your soul, they can cause you to have a devotion in your life to do something for the kingdom. And, and that's, what, that's what William and Catherine did. And it started off as the East London uh, Christian Mission, but they quickly, uh, they realized as they started out, they started to grow, and it, it couldn't be contained to just East London. Then it went out to London. And then from London, it spread out to the whole of England. And then from England, it spread out through Europe. And then it went down to Australia, and it went over to the United States, went over into uh, to at uh, Asia and to China and to that area. Um, and now it's the largest charitable organization in the world. It started in 1865, guys. It's now 2015. So what is that, uh, 150 years? 150 years. It's in 126 countries today, 25,000 officers. Humble beginnings, though. How did it start? So William in London, he's looking around. He's trying to figure out he, uh, he doesn't really have a job, and he's looking around, and he sees all these people uh, crowding around this, this uh, bar called Blind Beggar's Pub. And he saw the state they were in. He saw their physical depravity. He saw their spiritual needs, and, and, it, and the Lord spoke to him, and it was like, this is your work. And he said, he said he knew from that moment on he would never not have work again. And basically what he was saying was the, the need was so great. There were so many people that needed the message of the gospel of Christ. They needed hope. They needed someone to come and tell them that life could be better. Um, that he knew that, that uh, 
he would never not again have something to do, basically. He also knew that the work he was going to be doing wasn't glamorous, wasn't going to pay well, and that uh, they were reaching out to the, the London's poorest people, their most needy group. And guess what, guys? You get someone there saved, and you, you feed them, and you get their life turned around. They're not going to look up at you and go, thanks for saving me. Here's $100,000 to help your cause. They don't have that, right? But, that, but, that's, but the Lord says that we're to go help the widows. We're to help the, ba- we're to help the orphans. And, and these are, that's basically what these people represented. These people were orphans of society. Society said, you're not wanted. You're not worthy. We don't care about you. And, and, and that's where William and Catherine looked and said, these are, these are still God's children. They still need help, and we're going to help them. All right, so how, how do you have a successful ministry? How did they start this out? We've talked about this with almost every revival. I've talked about almost every successful ministry. You've got to have prayer, right? So they would meet and have intercessory prayer meetings, just like we do, guys. Tuesdays, uh, every Tuesday, we've got the watchman prayer that goes daily where we've got people praying over things. We've got the intercession prayer. Or, uh, what's it called, guys? What you guys do on Thursday nights? Incense, thank you. Incense, uh, once a month, where the intercessors come together in another special time of prayer. You have to have prayer in order to be successful. War against the forces of darkness. William and Catherine were smart enough to know they weren't just fighting man with this, right? This was the enemy that was trying to oppress them. And, and he was trying to oppress the whole society. What's interesting here, guys, is um, at the same time this was going on, uh, France, which is right beside England, was going through the revolution. And basically, they had a revolution because the people were so poor, and they got fed up with being poor. And I told you there was an industrial revolution. But what happens when there's an industrial revolution? The people that own the plants and the factories, they get really rich. And the people that work in the factories, they get poor. And what used to be the middle class that had, you know, that were skilled laborers that got pushed out by the factories, they got poor. So now you have a very small group at the top that's very rich. You have a very big group at the bottom that's very poor. And the entire country of France revolted on itself. And there was a ton of bloodshed. A lot of people lost their lives. Most people believe if it wasn't for the Salvation Army, the same thing would have happened in England. And basically, the Salvation Army met that need that kept that country from going through a revolution and and basically seeing all of that death. Because that's what the enemy wants, right? He wants us to turn on each other. He wants people to die. The more people he can die, the, the, the more people that aren't going to have a chance to accept Jesus before they die. Um, so we've got, they, had, they realized they had to war against the forces of darkness. They had prayer that was going about that. New convert testimonies. One of the most powerful things, guys. You get someone saved, and you see the Lord start working in their lives, and they're like a fire hydrant. Uh, to talk about Jesus, right? I mean, it just it's just coming out of them. Boom, boom, boom. They may not know the full word of God yet, but they're going to tell you every little bit that they do know because they're happy, right? Because they were going to hell, and now they're going to heaven. They were lost. They were told they weren't worth anything, and then someone told them, the God of, of heaven, the one who created everything, thinks you're awesome, and he loves you, and he wants, he wants to help you in life. So they, they started having new convert testimonies. Praise and worship. I thought this was interesting. He got some of the, his praise team to take whatever the most popular songs were of the day, and he got them to rewrite the lyrics to sing about Christian things. So he would, 
And I don't even know what the popular songs of today are, but whatever they whatever they are, he got them. So what would happen was these people would hear that 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 uh, jingle or that tune, and they were like, and and they that it was popular, so it was you know it caught their attention, and then they would hear a Christian message with it. So I'm sure even when they were hearing the actual tune, they in their head they were probably hearing the Christian message too, going, huh. So that was something different that they did. Um, again, the, the Holy Spirit led the meetings, just like our services. Holy Spirit says go right, we go right. That may mean worship for two hours and not preach. Or if the Holy Spirit says cut worship off, I got something to say, that's the same way they operated. Um, and then they were in obedience to God's command. Feed the hungry, clothe the naked, care for the sick, and visit the prisoners. This is what drove them, guys. This is what, uh, what gave them a purpose. Um, this, was, this was something that William Booth said to a group of the Salvation Army officers when he was talking about their purpose. He said, we are a salvation people. This is our specialty. Basically, this is what we're about, guys. This is what we do. People getting saved, getting people saved, and then getting somebody else saved. You are to be a copy of Jesus Christ himself. So consecrate every awakened power to the great end of saving them. Rescue the perishing. They are all around you everywhere. Crowds upon crowds, multitudes. Be skillful. Improve yourself. Study your business. So basically what he was saying, guys, go out. Use all means necessary to tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ. Understand who you're going to be talking to. Understand the hardships of their life so that you can be effective when you're talking to them. Understand when you're out talking to maybe someone of a different faith, maybe know a little bit about their faith so that you can talk to them about the truth. And uh, I, I look at Chris because Chris is real good at, at, at studying out and understanding maybe where the enemy may have deceived someone. He's very good at studying his business. And, and, and he doesn't do that, guys, to try to, to shame the other people or try to force them into something. But he wants them to understand, like, this is a deception that the enemy's brought in your life. And here's the truth, right? And, and if you do that in the right way, if you do that with a kind, caring heart, the Holy Spirit will be all over that. And, and he'll illuminate to that other person what the truth is. But if, if you don't know how to speak to that person, you know, at times you're not going to be effective. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will give you something. You can speak to him. Sometimes he'll just hit him. And that's, it's not, but what, what, what William Booth here was saying, be skillful. Study your business. Improve yourself. Be a better witness. Understand what you're doing. Be self-sacrificing. Remember your master. What you lose for his sake and for the sake of the poor souls for whom he died, you shall find again. Stick to it. Having put your hand to the salvation plow, don't look behind you. This was what he was about, right? Our ministry, we, we're about going out and saving souls, but we're also about some other things. His ministry was about saving souls. That's what they did. Um, and and uh, they did that a lot through, and where, I, where I read you earlier, be skillful, improve yourself, study your business. A lot of the ways they were accomplished, that guys, was through meet. They, it said, see a need, meet a need. So again, he was reaching out to the poor, the destitute, and he had something he called the three S's. S number one, soup. Give them something to feed their belly. They're going to have a hard time hearing you if all they can think about is how hungry they are. Two, so one, soup. Two, soap. Clean them up. 
Give them new clothes. Get them a shower. Let them feel. It's funny, guys. You feel so much better about yourself as a person if you don't smell. You're wearing clean clothes and you have a full belly. Giving them soup, giving them soap, which basically meant a shower, clean clothes. It, it wasn't about. Um, it was about. It was about helping them meet their need, but it was about giving them a sense of respect back, of self-respect, of that that they had worth. Because that's a long time of oppression from a society. What it does to a person, in in the enemy will come and he'll speak this in your ear. Says you're not worthy. You're not worthy to have a job. You're not even worthy to have food. You're not worthy to to look nice or to have a decent appearance. And it just beats down a person. So soup, first S soup, second S soap, third S salvation. They can have. They got a full belly. They got a good clean set of clothes, and and now they're ready to hear the gospel. And, and if you're the person that gave them the first two, you've now, you've earned a right to speak into their life. All right. Something I put on here, though, social causes, not socialism. There's a big difference, guys, between helping someone to better themselves and just taking care of someone. This is where so many of the government, where the government misses it. Um, when you just give someone something, Two, thing, two things happen. That person's self-respect, they lose it. They're, they were just given it. They, they didn't do anything to earn it. The second thing, that person starts to get a sense of entitlement. You owe this to me. When That's a dangerous combination. That, that combination of you owe me this and I no longer have respect of myself, that's the breeding ground of where you see like, the people in like the terrorist groups today, basically, they're going out and recruiting these young kids who, who are in that spot. William learned that uh, handouts will quickly erode a person's self-respect. And, and, and so instead of giving them food, he found a way for each person to pay a small amount, um, whether that be that they would go and do work for the mission itself. Maybe they, they, maybe they couldn't afford anything. He said, okay. Well, then come and help us you know, sweep, the, sweep out the mission for an hour and I'll feed you. Whatever it was. Then once their belly was full, they were able to receive the message a lot better. But you, you, don't, just, you don't just give it away you, on, a, on a large scale. There are times, guys, right, when we go out to see the homeless people and they're out there and it's 30 degrees and they're standing there in a T-shirt and they're shivering and you have a coat, you give them the coat. I mean, you don't say, hey, um, go uh, wash my car and then come back and I'll give you my... I mean, there is a time where you just show mercy. But on the large scale, you can't just give it. You can't just continue to give stuff to people because it, it tells them that they don't... In the Bible, it says you have to work. You know, and, and part of it's not just for the other person. It's not for the land, the owner. It, it's, it's for yourself. You feel value when you're doing something and you're productive. All right, so social needs. The soup kitchen was a big one. Homes for women coming out of prostitution, which was a huge problem then. Missing Persons Bureau. Every single year, over 9,000 people went missing in England. And they're really, the government didn't have a missing persons bureau. So the Salvation Army formed one. I'm going to talk to you a little bit down here in a little bit about sex trafficking. A lot of the people that went missing, a lot of them were young teenage or even younger girls. And um, they were... They were missing because they were kidnapped and, and, and forced into sex trafficking. Um, they formed a labor bureau and employment services. And basically, they placed 69,000 people in, into jobs over a seven years that it was in operation. So the government didn't have, didn't have it. 
but the church, but the uh, Salvation Army did. All right, real big one, guys. We're going to move into, I'm going to spend the last two things here we're going to talk about are uh, uh, the sex trafficking ministry that they had, and then um, I'm going to tell you about um, a ministry they, they formed for a, a, a group of factory workers uh, that was called Lights, Lights in the Darkest England Matches. Um, but first, we're going to talk about the sex trafficking. So... I'm sure they were aware of the problem at the time because it was part of the society, but they, they specifically, they had a woman who had been in the sex trafficking trade, not as one of the actual girls being traded, but she was, she was like a, a mother of the brothel house. So she would, she would, I will use the, the term loosely, take care of these young girls. Basically, she would make sure they were fed, they were clothed before they would be sent out um, to have sex with men and to receive, you know, the, the brothels and the houses would receive the money for that. So this woman gives her life to the Lord. She leaves that lifestyle, and she comes to the booths, and she, she just gives them a, a first-person account of what, ha- of what was going on. And, you know, William and Catherine, with already having such a heart for the poor and for those that are in a bad, bad way, uh, this really spoke to them, and, and they wanted to help these girls. And thousands of young girls were being kidnapped. They were um, either tricked or drugged. Um, and in whatever way they could be, they were, they were obtained. And then they were sold into the sex trade. A lot of these girls would be drugged in England. And then they would be shipped out to other countries in Europe for people that would have basically paid for them to, to be sex slaves. Um, some girls, they would, they would drug them. They would put them into a wood coffin, and then they would put them on a train and ship them across the borders. They would drill holes in these coffins so the girls could breathe. It said one young girl woke up in the coffin, and she got so frightened by it, she actually uh, had a heart attack and died because she woke up in this coffin. And you know, All you can see is the light coming in through the holes in the coffin. Um, so I say all that to say, because this, this was a horrible thing, right? I mean, uh, and these were young girls. I mean, a lot of these girls were, were 12, 13 years old, uh, even younger some. Uh, some of the parents uh, so, sold their girls um, so that they could support alcohol and drug addictions. Uh, I told you at that time, you know, every fifth house was a gin house. A lot of people were poor, um, and they basically just sold their kids. They, I mean, they wanted... They wanted alcohol, they wanted drugs, and uh, they, would, they would sell their, their kids into this, into this lifestyle. Um, there was one story in there, it talked specifically, there was a, a rich store owner or a merchant, um, and he paid to, uh, was supposed to have sex with the young girl, and when he got to the brothel room to, to have the, the sexual relations, um, he, gets, he opens the door and he goes into the room, and he comes face to face with his own daughter. Someone, someone had kidnapped her from Sunday school, her Sunday school. She was the age that the man had asked for. He came face to face with his own daughter sitting there on the bed. And, and you know, guys, I don't know what that man thought at that time. I don't know what he was thinking beforehand. But um, this was the, I don't want to say the norm, but this wasn't out of the norm of the society that, that William and Catherine were operating in. So this obviously, this grieved them. Um, Bramwell Booth, who is William and Catherine's son, uh, 
he he heard this and and he he didn't know how he could help them, but he thought he thought you know we know a lot of people that are in politics. He said, let's go and um, let's see if we can't do something through the government to help them. And he goes to the Home Secretary of England, and he uh, he asked them to pass a law. And at that time, um, the age of consent to have sex was 13, which basically meant if the girl was 13 years old, an older man could have sex with her and not face any type of like rape charges or things of that nature. Um, so so Bramwell, he went to the he went to the equivalent of like our Congress, and he asked them to to raise that from 13 years old to 16 years old. Um, in America right now, guys, it's 18, right? So he. It, so it was 13 in England. He asked him to raise it to 16. Not only when it got to the House of Commons, which is like their Congress, not only did they block that, they opened up debate as to whether 13, if that was a good age, or should they drop it to 10. So he went in there and said, 13 is too young. It should be 16. And the people that represented the representative body of, of England at that time said, 13's old enough. Maybe that's too old. Maybe we should drop it down. So this obviously um, just shows you kind of the depravity in the society. Um, at that time, the, the, trade, the sexual trade industry was generating more than 8 million British pounds per year, which today would be equivalent to about a billion dollars a year um, uh, in, in dollars that were generated from this. Um, and what it said was that the brothel owners, so the sexual brothel owners and the, and the traffickers seemed to have more friends in the government than what the Salvation Army did. So they knew that they weren't going to be able to go through government to get this done. So they, they formed out another plan. And they, they figured out that they were going to have to get um, such an outcry from the public that there would be a, a backlash to where the government would have to do something. And they worked with um, the editor of a... Uh, a newspaper there in London, and he convinced them that they were going to do an undercover operation where basically they were going to send in um, someone to buy um, a young girl. Basically, they went to a mother that they knew was an alcoholic, and they, they purchased her daughter from her, um, and they set it up as a sting operation. Once they did that, they actually, rather than letting the girl have to go through the sexual relations, they, they sent her to a a safe house that the uh, that the Salvation Army had. Uh, the police found out about it, though, and they tried to arrest um, the newspaper editor and the booths because they didn't want it to get out that this had happened. Um, but they were able to print the newspaper. Um, while they were printing the newspaper, someone broke into the newspaper building and burned it down. So then they actually had to go to the Salvation Army headquarters and print the story there and... Uh, the, newspaper, the newsboys that used to go out on the street and sell the newspapers, the police started arresting them. So then the Salvation Army officers and their, you know, their, their full army getup went, went out on the streets and took the routes that the, the paper boys typically had, and they sold, the, they sold it. And the police, the police didn't mess with them because they, they knew the, you know, the poll that the Salvation Army had. But once the story hit and people understood what was happening, um, there was a big outcry. They had a signature, within a couple of days, they had a signature with 393,000, I'm sorry, a petition with 393,000 signatures. Um, and within a week, uh, or within a month, they had raised the age of consent to 16. So um, 
again, guys, it just kind of it goes to show that they, the Salvation Army, because of the size and the scope of it, and because of what their heart was, they weren't. They were about the message and the business of Jesus Christ, but they were about meeting the needs of the people as well, and they were able to affect society. And that the second thing I'm going to talk to you about is it's called Lights in the Darkest England Matches, and at that time. Um, I told you they'd just gone through the Industrial Revolution. So there were a lot of factories, but there wasn't any real oversight into what the conditions in the factories had to be. So what you, have, what you had was these business owners, it was much, they were much more profitable if they didn't pay to have the factories made that nice. There wasn't ventilation to bring fresh air into the factories. It wasn't very well lit. They didn't pay the workers that much. And there was a company in England called Strike Anywhere Matches, and uh, they, they, they made matches, and uh, they used this stuff called yellow phosphorus to make it. Uh, today, match heads are tipped with red phosphorus. Red phosphorus is a lot less hazardous, and uh, it's a lot safer to work with. Well, what was happening was this yellow phosphorus would cause the workers to get what was called flossy jaw. And basically what would happen, it sounds funny, but what would happen is their jawbone would start to rot away. So their face, if you can imagine the hard, you know, the, hard part of, the hard part of your jaw actually began to deteriorate and that bone just started to crumble. Um, so this, this would cause people to have to basically quit their jobs and go home. And there was no one that was doing anything to give them any protection. So what the Salvation Army did, they went ahead and bought their own factory. They made it very well lit. They paid to have ventilation so that the, the gases, the phosphorus gases and things, were sucked out of the factory and fresh air was brought in. Um, and they only used yellow phosphorus, or I'm sorry, they only used red phosphorus, which was a lot safer. It cost more, but it was a lot safer. And, they, and then they were very smart. They started a public, uh, like a marketing campaign, and they started publishing pictures of the workers that had the flossy jaw. And they started saying, do you use Strike Anywhere matches? This is what you're contributing towards. And they got anyone that was a supporter of the Salvation Army to stop buying the Strike Anywhere matches and to demand that their shop owners um, only sell the, what was called the light, Lights in the Darkest England matches. And that name, guys, just so you know, Lights in the Darkest England was actually a book that was written by William Booth um, that talked about how, how you could change a society. And it had a lot to go, I'm going to go back to the three S's. It talked about basically giving people, um, helping people to feel worthy, giving them food, getting them cleaned up, teaching them a skill, and then allowing them to, to work and, and to have a healthy lifestyle. So he wrote this book, which became a bestseller, but they named the match company after that. Well, what ended up happening, public opinion swung so much that uh, the government stepped in and forced Strike Anywhere matches to retrofit all of their factories. Once they did that, then uh, the, the Salvation Army match factory basically went ahead and shut down because the factories were repaired. They gave the, weight, the, the workers better wages. So oftentimes, they, I mean, the Salvation Army wasn't doing it to make money. That wasn't their, the reason for the business. So once the societal ill was kind of fixed, they just moved on to something else. So... All right, guys. Um, so, when you have when you have two people that are in love, or you have brothers and sisters in Christ that are in love, and that are loving each other, and that are loving the Lord, um, 
and then you bring them together in a unified purpose and, and, and they have a compassion like Jesus had for the poor, for the sick, for the orphans, for the widows. What's born out of it is, is a ministry like the Salvation Army that has the ability to affect the world and to do it for 150 years so it's a lasting ministry. It's not one that was here for five years and then burn out. Um, and, and it was a ministry that, again, where strengths of one covered the weaknesses of others. Um, obviously, this led William Booth to be very well known. When he died in 1912, over 150,000 people attended his funeral. And uh, Charles Spurgeon once said about the Salvation Army, he said, if the Salvation Army were wiped out of London, 5,000 extra policemen could not fill its place in the repression of crime and disorder. So what that basically meant, guys, was even if you, so there wasn't 5,000 Salvation Army workers, but what they brought to the society, the idea that you, you, you have worth and you have worth. And when, when you feel like you have worth and you respect yourself and you, you feel like you're part of society, you're less likely to try to bring down that society. You're less likely to go out and to hurt other people and to steal. Um, and, and the Salvation Army gave people that hope, that hope. They told them, your future can be better than what your past has been. So what he was saying was, even if you hired 5,000 policemen, you couldn't do what the Salvation Army did to affect society and the culture they were in. And that came about, guys, again, because of William and Catherine Booth, because of the love they had for those that were, that were sometimes, quote, unquote, unlovable. The people that society overlooked, they made a whole ministry out of helping those people. A lot of those people became the, the soldiers in the Salvation Army, and they affected all of society because of that. So, All right. Well, that, uh, that concludes the sermon tonight on William and Catherine Booth. So, yeah. So pretty awesome ministry still going on today. Um, before we shut down, guys, um, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to bless you. And then if... Uh, I felt like, uh, I know different people have been battling some sicknesses, so um, I'm going to pray for anyone that wants prayer tonight over that. Um, Wendy, will you go ahead and go to the screen and maybe put some music on? Um, all right, I'm going to close this in prayer here too. Father, we thank you for tonight. Lord, we thank you for the ability to come together. We thank you for um, insight into William and Catherine's life and what we can take out of their ministry and what you have for us as a body of Christ today. I pray, Lord, you help us to, to be in a place of humility where we can allow others to help cover our weaknesses, Lord, um, and in a place where we can be a strength and, and where we have strength to help cover other weaknesses, Lord, and to see your, your purposes accomplished, Lord. We thank you that what uh, William and Catherine Booth had, that love, Father, for those that are hurting and those that need help, Lord, I pray that that just that stir up within us and within our spirits as well. I thank you tonight for those that are here, Father, uh, and those that aren't, that aren't able to be here, Lord, those that are going to hear this later on. I pray that this gets down into our souls and into our spirit and that everything that you want us to take out of it comes forth. And Jesus, I, we, we thank you for this. Um, I'm going to close out in Jesus' name. Guys, I'm going to go ahead and bless you in just a second. Guys, this is, again, this is a blessing that the Lord gave me for River of Life. So um, I love it. I feel it every time I pray it. I believe it. And I, 
You know, there's I can pray for you, and prayer, prayer is awesome. But there's something special in a blessing. When I bless you guys, I'm speaking this out in front of you in your life. And you're going to walk into this daily. That's what, that, there's power in the blessing. We, as we were praying for the homeless man last night, I prayed for him, and then I asked him if I could bless him, and I was explaining this principle to him. I was saying, when I bless you and I'm speaking these favorable things in your life, I'm, tell, I'm, I'm letting you know that your, your latter years are going to be better than your former years, and that Jesus has a purpose in, his, in your life, and that the, the, the things that you're going to walk into, I'm going to speak the angels go in front of you and bring down the mountains and raise up the valleys and to bring, bring good things in your life. And, and that's awesome. And that's what, so I, as I bless you guys, just receive this and know that these are things you're going to walk into. I bless myself, my family, and all of River of Life, those that are associated with our ministry, those that are here with us in person, those that are not able to be here but are watching online either now or in the future. I bless you to have and to demonstrate the faith of Abraham, the intimacy of Enoch, the heart of David, the wisdom of Solomon. I bless you to have the innocence of Samuel, the vision of Elijah, the bravery of Joshua, and the leadership of Moses. I pray you to have the create, and I bless you to have the creative excellence of Adam, the beauty of Eve, and the desire to serve the Lord's kingdom of Obed-Edom. I pray for you to have the boldness of Hadassah or Esther, and the strength of Samson. I declare over you, you will have discipline in your prayer lives and find great joy resting in the Lord's presence, soaking in his presence. Your bodies are strong, fit, lean, and flexible, and the organs within your bodies work exactly the way that Yahweh has intended them. I bless you that those that are seeking children, that you are supernaturally fertile and that the Lord will bring about children in your life. I pray right now you experience a supernatural joy and a peace in your life and that show consistently on your countenance, bringing glory to God all the days of your life. I declare over you that you are a child of God, and he claims you as his own. You are a son or a daughter, and his blessings are on you. They will follow you all the days of your life. I speak over you now. You are a head and not the tail. You are above and not beneath, and you will not know want or lack, but instead the Lord's blessings will chase you down and overcome you and will be a testament to his glory and the love that he has for you, his child. Right now, I curse the plans of Satan against God's perfect will for your life. I command them they will wither and die, they will not bear fruit, and they will not produce a harvest. But instead, you will see the perfect will of God come forth in your life. You will walk in abundance, and all you put your hand to will prosper. Your prayer time will be deep, rich, and intimate with the Lord. And I declare over you, you have a deep understanding of who you are in Christ. I bless you to live boldly and confidently because you know Jesus has made you a co-heir to his throne. I declare that you are an ambassador of the Lord's heavenly kingdom and that you operate on earth as a king and as a priest. And Lord, as we close out tonight, Father, I speak your blessing over the people of River of Life, Lord. I pray your angels go out before them. They bring down the mountains. They raise up the valleys and that you keep our feet on the path that you have for us, Lord. Father, make us as wise as serpents and as gentle as doves, Lord. Let us, Father, at the end of each day, Lord, let us sound more like you, uh, see things as you see them, Lord, and love as you love, Lord. Let us be more like you, Lord. This is our heart's cry, Father. We thank you for it. It's in Jesus' mighty name we ask this. Amen. All right, guys. Uh, 
If I could get some help, guys, um, we're going to pray for people on this side of the room tonight since that side's got some water on the floor. So if we could get the chairs lifted up. Um, and then if you, uh, guys, if you want prayer um, over, I feel specifically tonight, guys, for prayer, uh, if you've had any type of health issues or dealing with any sickness, I want to pray for you tonight.